Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. On the show this week, we've got... I'm Dee Coakley, and I'm co-founder and CEO of Boundless. Dee founded Boundless in Ireland in 2019 with Emily Castles, and Boundless is the operating system for your international team. In short, Boundless is global employment made simple, with benefits, share options, and payroll in one neat platform. In this episode, Dee riffs with Owen Fitzgerald and me on the snowball effect of the diverse international experiences and relationships that made Boundless such a no-brainer for her to co-found, the shifting mindsets and societal changes that have made remote working and distributed international teams a scalable reality, and how Dee is thinking about the next steps to grow the Boundless business. So let's just get on with it with Dee Coakley from Boundless, all right here on Money Never Sleeps. Thanks for coming on to the show. It's great to do this with you. I'm so glad we met, thanks to Gene Murphy, when we had that Dublin startup ecosystem pre-Christmas gathering at Izakaya. that Gene came back from New York and he said, let's pull everyone together. Gene, so, Gene is a, an Uber connector. He's great at bringing people together. I've got so many is. questions through him over the years. He is. Big, big shout out to Gene. He was actually one of the few that we did a video podcast with way back in the day about 110 episodes ago. And I saw him when I was in New York last week. Do you do that transatlantic trip much, Dee, to New York? I do. And I, I'm actually very close to Gene and his wife, Jess. So they're my, they're my people when I'm in New York. I stay at a hotel that's on their block and I usually see quite a bit of them. I only go a couple of times a year. Last year, I did a trip to Atlanta, one to San Francisco and two to New York. But I, I don't spend a huge amount of time in the US, but I love New York. Yeah. Spend, I'm hoping to spend maybe a couple of months there this year at some point. Okay. A couple of months is better than three and a half days because it just puts you through a time warp. And I lost my voice Tuesday night in New York City and I didn't find it again until I got home to Dublin on, on Friday. So that was that was unfortunate, but it lasted just long enough for us to do an awesome Techstars Web3 event at Union Square Ventures with our friends from Genesis Block on Tuesday night. So that, that nice. was great. I got to have breakfast with Gene on Tuesday morning at Pershing Square, right underneath, I think it's the Parks, Park Avenue Bridge, right by Grand Central Station, an iconic old restaurant that I Gene told me had, you know, been in plenty of movies, but I did get a cheaper bagel with smoked salmon than I had last time I was there. Yeah, it was only one. 22 it was only $22 <laughs> instead of $25. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, New York is pretty pricey these days. It is. When you're going with Euro. It is, definitely, definitely. But so, yes, like I said, big shout out to Gene. And, but, you know, really interested in your business and glad that we met, glad that we had that initial first chat. And that with digging into your profile, D, just finding some really interesting nuggets there that I wanted to dig into. And, but before, just to inform those who may not be familiar with Boundless, can you just give us a quick insight into the Boundless vision and what it's all about? Sure. So Boundless is an enabler for, for building international teams. And it's a platform that companies with workers in countries where that company might not have established operations, they can use Boundless to very quickly and easily get set up to employ those people, handle their payroll, handle their benefits. And I always say when we're hiring, we, we 
we don't have a really hard time hiring because all of our team are very mission focused. Most of our team live in a country that's not the country they grew up in. I think all of our team have lived, like me, have lived in multiple countries. And it's really nice to do something where you're enabling that reality for lots of other people. And, and that's really our mission is, is to be an enabler for, for that kind of location flexibility and the kind of lifestyle choices that people make. So my, my co-founder lives up a mountain in Chamonix. She's a few minutes walk from a ski lift. She's from Ireland, but for her, remote work was an enabler for, for that kind of lifestyle. And that's really important to us. Awesome. That's Emily Castles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. And it, they, what, what really was compelling about your whole story, D, is that you have deep firsthand experience of the problem you're solving, right? You've sure lived it. I do. You've lived I sure, it. I sure do. To, to the extent that my ex-colleagues say they regularly laugh that I now spend my life doing this because it used to drive me crazy. I always say I, I spent 10 years in COO roles with B2B SaaS companies. And I always say this was the problem that made me curse the loudest. I was infuriated by this problem. So the last company I was with, a really great interactive video tech company called Axonista, an Irish company, we built a team to be co-located out of our head office in Dublin. But as is always the case with, with tech companies, people were from lots of different countries. And over time, people were requesting moves back to their home countries or they got sick of the Irish weather and wanted to go to somewhere with, with a sunnier climate. And it really fell to me to figure out how to make that happen. And it's extremely, I mean, these problems are really complex, really complex. Once a worker is in another country, as a company, you have to comply with the employment laws and the tax laws of that country. Doing that as a foreign company, particularly if you're a smaller company, is really tricky. But, you know, huge, huge beasts of companies with tens of thousands of employees also struggle with this problem. Definitely. It's a meaty one. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I see that. I live that problem every day. And that's probably a story for another day that you might be able to help me with, Dee. But mm-hmm. it's, you know, when you have distributed teams, global workforce, no matter whether you're you know, 30 people or 300 people or 3000 people. It's just, it can be such a massive headache and create so many unnecessary costs for the business, which are just passive costs that you just don't need that can just completely drag down the bottom line. That's the thing. It's not core. You know, I, that was the thing that really frustrated me when I was a COO, when I was dealing with these problems, I was, I was having to source lawyers in France and Germany and look for accountants in Croatia and Spain. And it wasn't driving the business forward. I mean, sure, having having the right people is so hugely valuable to any business. So there's a big value upside in solving the problem, but it's not core to your business. So we always say all of that, that stuff, that heavy lifting and the nitty gritty that no one is interested in, we take on all of that. So yeah, now I spend my spend my days worrying about these problems that I I hated so much before I founded this business. <laughs> What I was going to say is you've probably had like a front row seat then in terms of how working has changed now in the past four years. Is it just that now you can remote work better? You know, does that mean more people are doing it or are, you know, which is driving it? They want to work in a different country or they want to work for a particular company, regardless of where that is. Well, it's a real mix and it's been really interesting. We founded the company in 2019 
And over that time, it's only a few years, but the use cases that we're solving for, there's been a real shift. We've seen different waves of demand for different reasons. As we, you know, first went into COVID and remote work was brand new for everyone, as people were settling into it, and now as it becomes a more long-term thing. And there has been a real, from our perspective, a perfect storm of, of situations and realities. And one is the fact that the genie's out of the bottle on remote work. Pretty much anyone that's a knowledge worker has now experienced remote work in some form or capacity. And that means that most people will argue they can do their job remotely to some extent. And when I say most people, I mean people that, that do desk jobs. And that that's not going to change. That's here and, and it's here to stay. Secondary to that, we've all had an existential crisis as we were in lockdowns. And we all asked a lot of questions about our lives and what we want from our lives. And lots of people have relocated from the city to the country. Lots of people have changed careers and, and done something different. That questioning has meant that a lot of people have been on the move. But very related to that is that attitudes have changed and people desire and expect flexibility when it comes to work. And they want flexibility in all of it for all of its forms. We often say people when they're starting a job, people at interview stage before going for a first stage interview, and we see this all the time when we're hiring, people will say, you say this is a remote job. How remote is it? I need to know that it's fully flexible. And a lot of people will not even go for an interview until they know that. And I often say it's not that they necessarily intend moving country but they want to know they can. People want to know. They want that assurance. And it tells you something about an employer. It tells you something about how open they are, how flexible they are. And if a company is really rigid on location, it perhaps tells you something about their rigidity in relation to other matters. And employees love to hear that they have location flexibility. Now, you know, the real world operates in such a way that full location flexibility is rarely viable for a variety of reasons, because of time zones, because of practicalities, the problems that we solve, even customers using an employer of record or, or using some solution like that, quite often they won't have access or won't have the ability to do that for every country in the world. It'll often be a list and cost reasons. From an employer's perspective, it's super low cost to have someone in Denmark, for example, where employer taxes are only about 1.25%. It's a fixed cost. Even for, for people on very high salaries, it ends up being a very low cost. But if that employee wants to move to France or a lot of Southern European countries, those employer taxes are going to cost the company, it could be 40 to 50% of the salary. Oh, wow. Employees often don't realize that when they're requesting moves. They think, how hard can it be? They're just being awkward. Why would you know? Why would they let me do this? And quite often, line managers aren't given exposure to the realities of why it's a no, and, and it's just a no. So a no was communicated to the employee. They think the 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 company is just being awkward, but it can often be down to very practical reasons why it's not possible. That's that's mad. I never would have appreciated that because obviously you see all the talk of digital or. or 
know visas to allow people to go work remotely in different countries and lots of countries are kind of bending over backwards to encourage people but obviously there's that kind of hidden you know cost to an employer which would probably prevent some of that happening yeah yeah and there's also the fact that depending on the type of role that you do if you work in a regulated space so we have quite a few customers that are in the financial services space so we have quite a few vcs private equity funds but the individuals that work in roles that are regulated, so people in investment type roles, we can't employ them. But we yeah. can employ the admin people or people who might be in marketing roles or, or related areas. But for a venture capital fund or a private equity fund or a bank, for example, if someone is in a role that will be subject to regulation, if they move to another territory, they're there is a real chance that the financial services organization would then need to be regulated in that territory, which opens up a whole can of worms. Or if people are in sales roles, there could be the risk of creating a permanent establishment in a territory. So often employees aren't aware of that either. They, you know, I've been there. I've been the person who's had to establish entities and countries and then backtrack and unpick it all at a later stage. And it takes years. When I say it takes years, you know, I've had it before where an employee moved to a country, we established a permanent establishment, got accountants involved, we were registered with the tax authorities. Within months, they moved to another country. And it took me about eight, you know, 18 months later, I was still having to deal with the local tax authorities, file taxes, pay corporation taxes in that country. Because they're, they're your obligations. You can't just shut down an entity overnight. It takes time. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of changing jurisdictions, D, it looks like your first one that you did might have been round about the time that I was also at Boston University. Um, right. Yeah. Way back when. And so you were at Dublin City University at the time, and it looks like you did an exchange program. And I was there at that point in time. Right. Yeah. BU. I, I live, it was a Howard Johnson's hotel at that point. Now it's a Boston University owned building right by the sickle sign. Oh, That's yeah. You um, lived I, in the Howard Johnson. I lived in the Howard Johnson. It That's was so awesome. So, cool. so I was an Irish student coming from Irish University. And, you know, Irish universities just run very differently to U.S. universities. So I was going on this exchange program and I was very excited to see what it would be like. And we, we don't have dorms here. You know, we don't have yep. that culture. So I was super excited about staying in college dorms and to see what that experience was like. And then I got there and because they guarantee accommodation to overseas students and first year students, they had this overflow accommodation and it was all international students and two floors of the hotel was just students. The rest of the hotel operated like a regular hotel. It was chaos. We didn't have any security like the dorms had. So we just had parties every awesome. of the week. We all in our friend, you know, all our friends had room keys for the, the car, key cards for our rooms. It was it was chaos. I don't know how the hotel tolerated us, but I guess we were confined to two floors. We weren't upsetting other guests. But yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. That's great. I parked outside that many times because I was in the School of Management, which was right next door yeah. to Hojo's. Where I had a lot uh, of As, as yeah. we called it, which was a stone's throw from Fenway Park. Yeah. I must have met, did you go to at least one Red Sox game when you were there? I have to admit, I didn't, which oh, seems no. crazy. <laughs> no, I was, I was extremely busy. So I had all, you know, studying. I had a very busy social life. And then I worked at a, a pub, you might know, Cleary's Irish Pub by Cox. Oh, yeah. There. Yeah. I worked, of course, I worked in an Irish pub. 
Yeah, I remember that. That was relatively new when you were working there. Maybe it was. Yeah, it was because they clear it had the famous clock out front that yes. was reminiscent of the Cleary's clock on O'Connell Street in Dublin. Exactly, exactly. And I went back a few years ago, and nothing had changed. The menu was exactly the same. Some, and we're talking about a twenty-year gap here. The menu yeah. was exactly the same. Some of the staff hadn't changed. The decor was exactly the same. It was brilliant. It was such a trip down memory lane. Oh, no, that's great. And you, when, when you, you came back and you got into the beginning of your career with Sanctuary and Big Time, right? That was mainly around entertainment industry and merchandise and licensing and all of that. Did that give you a, a certain, what kind of start did that give you working in that industry from day one? So I knew when I was a student, I knew I wanted to work in the music industry. I always played music growing up, came from a very musical household with my, my dad and my brother, musicians, and that was my real passion. So I wanted to work in record companies, artist management, something along those lines. So I did that for about seven years. It was so much fun. I learned a huge amount. It, it's a very chaotic industry met up with an old work colleague last Thursday night that I hadn't seen for about 12 years. And yeah, it hasn't changed. It's still, still a crazy, crazy industry. It's, but I learned so much. The company I worked for, Sanctuary, was very, very multifaceted. It doesn't exist anymore. It was bought out by Universal Music quite a few years ago. But the organization had grown through acquisition. They'd IPO'd, raised funding to acquire a broad range of businesses. And the group owned record companies, artist management companies, merchandise, recording studios, music publishers, book publishers, it's really multifaceted. And I did a management training program with them where I had the brilliant experience of spending a few months hopping around different group companies, which was super cool. I learned so much. I often think obviously amazing to work in a creative industry, but a lot of like the, the, the stuff where I really learned a lot was around the licensing and IP end of things, which I got really involved in and, and was a founding member of a, a trademark and rights protection organization, a trade body. But yeah, that, that and also working in an organization and music is so different now. Back then, it was about CDs. It was about record sales and the discipline of manufacturing businesses. And I, I worked in the merchandise end of things as well, which is a really complex business because we had a touring division. You had some people in Asia, some people were in the US, some were in Europe, and they were on the move every few days. And you had to track the stock that they were selling and anticipate what the stock needs would be and what country you need to deliver them. At that time, brand licensing was not what it is now. We kind of forget one of my colleagues was super smart and, and she went and did a deal with Topshop and a deal with H&M, which at the time was revolutionary. It was, wow, we're doing a brand licensing deal with major high street retailers. And we had the rights for Motorhead and Guns N' Roses. So we, we did deals with Sweet. them for, for T-shirts and clothing with these brands on them. But that, that was very new at the time. It was also the time, I don't know if you remember this, but we were selling ringtones and phone screensaver. Oh, yeah. Anyone under 40 probably listening to this or certainly under 35 will think, 
people used to pay for phone <laughs> ringtones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just to, just to quote the Arctic Monkeys going back to like, what was it, 2006, is that there's only music, so there's new ringtones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people used to buy it. It was very, it was a, a window of time. And people used to pay for ring savers for their yeah. phones. This is back when there were candy bar phones. But yeah, we, we did a lot of that. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it's a great, great. And, and that's where you got some of your your planning and strategy and execution and operational bones. Yeah, in terms for sure. Of, you know, getting things going. Yeah, and, I, I worked at a, a music marketing agency at one point, And I remember the CEO saying to me, someday you'll be a great ops leader you know you could be a COO or something and I, I was really offended because I thought you have to work in ops that sounds really boring <laughs> or I was actually offended because I think I wanted I had notions about doing something a bit more creative but I was far more suited to the ops stuff you know I, I was good, really good at execution yeah no it, it's a good combination the creativity mm-hmm. and well as well as the operational strength so it's uh, it, it served you well and you've made a you know before your next phase kicked in, you made a little bit of a creative stop with Silver Wishbone. I, I did. saw that. So I had a window of time. I decided to leave music. It was the year I turned 30. It's a bit of a cliche in the music industry. A lot of people leave the year they turn 30. And I knew I wanted to do something else. I wanted something. I was more ambitious than than what my career in the music industry was was giving me. And I just felt like I wasn't able to get to where I wanted to be in music. So I, I just took a jump. And then I had a two-year period where I, I guess I was trying to find my purpose and figure out where I go. And I knew, I knew I wanted to move into, at that time, I was saying online, mobile or online, which is you know, what we, now we'd probably call tech, because I could see in music, there were huge opportunities in those spaces. And I didn't have experience in digital, as we called it then. So I thought I'd get that experience and probably then start a music tech startup. As soon as I got into tech, I realized it's where I wanted to be. So I had that ambition, but didn't know how to get there. I didn't have a network, didn't have any experience in that space. So for two years, I did a few different things. I did a a one-year contract with UBS Investment Bank, and I did a one-year contract at Bob Geldof's startup private equity fund. So that was really interesting as well to see it was a, a real startup. I was employee number two. How how were Mondays at that place? <laughs> well, I didn't like them. <laughs> so yeah, and then on the side, I, it was when I look back, you know, it's, it's a, you have that kind of energy when you're younger. When I look back, I was like, this is so crazy. I did so many things at once. I did a project management qualification. I did an accounting qualification. I and I started Silver Wishbone, an online jewelry retail business. I, just, I, re, I wanted to build a website. Mm-hmm. That was the, no, I used a website builder. I, I used Yahoo Web, web Builder. Ooh, okay. <laughs> That's old school. It was quite a few years ago. Yeah. So I, I, I'm very into jewelry. I love jewelry. So I built this online jewelry retail business. I didn't build a business. That's not, that's a lie. I built a website. <laughs> but but you got you got it going. It was commercial. It, yeah, it, it was up and running. You got it customers. Was up and running. I had customers. I I had some customers who were people that weren't even in my personal network. But almost immediately, as soon as it was up and running, I realized this is about packing boxes, go to the post office. So I knew you know I knew it could it would never be a huge business. But 
I realized what I enjoyed was setting it up. I enjoyed the research piece, deciding on the pricing, sourcing the product. All of that was fun. And then once it was up and running, I was like, so maybe that's what gave me a bit of an insight into startups and how the the early stage, the setup stage, figuring stuff out is, is actually so much more exciting and interesting than the status quo. Definitely, definitely. And I saw that silverwishbone.com is now owned by a woman named Shannon, who is a freelance writer in Florida. So at least it stayed I, in creative hands. I haven't looked in so long. Yeah. It's a good name. Yeah. 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 It was a very good name. It was a very good name. And th- that kind of led to your next step with Masabi and then mm-hmm. returning to Dublin with Bizimply, with Axonista, as you mentioned, in, and doing some consulting in there as well. And that gave you kind of a, a, a multidiscipline, multifaceted kind of experience across a number of different startups at different stages. And that must have been extremely valuable. Yeah. So, you know, as I said, I had these ambitions to get into tech and the job at Masabi was, I actually saw it advertised online, which is so unusual for a role like that. It was on Monster. Remember Monster? Yeah. yeah. Other jobs. Yeah. And it was just, I, I feel so blessed I got that job. It was just perfect for me and I got such brilliant experience and the founders are just great guys I haven't I haven't seen them recently but but did spend almost a whole day with them a couple of years ago I was the fifth or sixth employee I was the sixth employee it was five engineers when I arrived in they had no live products no money in the bank no customers um, very definitely, you know, pre, pre-revenue, but amazing. These were extremely talented engineers, really, really smart guys. And they just knew they needed someone that wasn't an engineer. So they'd advertise for a commercial manager, but I didn't really know what a commercial manager was and they didn't really know. So I just came in and I did all the stuff that was not writing code. And they've been going for, for eight years. They've been building apps for eight years. Wow. But obviously, there was an extremely limited market. But this was the year the iPhone launched. Okay. So suddenly, they had this. There were commercial opportunities for people that knew how to build apps, and there were not many people that knew how to build apps. So you know, the people at Apple were extremely aware of us and what we were doing, even though we were like this six-person company. And we had the ability to take payment in app because the guys had done some early mobile banking stuff, and that was at the time we'd meet with VCs and they'd say, "You're." taking the payment, you're handling the payment yourself in the app. And we say, yeah. And then they'd say, but what about all the people that will never buy anything on a mobile phone? And we yeah. say, yeah, of course, there'll be loads of, of people not. who never put their payment card detailed into a mobile phone. <laughs> but well, it's very different now. So it was just a brilliant experience. I, you know, we raised multiple rounds of investment. We grew the team. We were initially serving customers in the UK. We were based in London. I started serving customers in the US. Really long sales cycles very long we were selling to transit agencies we were doing ticketing for at that stage tray it was train operators now they serve all kinds of transit agencies but yeah brilliant brilliant experience and I just got to really I mean I, mean, I you know I, I had decent up skills going in there but it was the first time I'd been in a senior leadership role where I got to own functions. So I was responsible for finance, legal, mm-hmm. HR. I oversaw all of the the, the goal setting at, at an organizational level. I worked really closely with the founders to define the direction that we would go in and then to figure out how to get the team to come along with us. That was that was probably the piece of it that 
that I really enjoyed the most. But we went from six people in a crummy office to, you know, moving to these great offices and we had a team of about 50. They have about 300 now, so it's grown a lot since that time. But it, it was cool. It was a really cool experience and I loved it. And I, I you, know, you know, I mentioned that I thought I would go and do something in tech and get enough experience to go back to music. I'd say I was there 10 days and I said, right, this, I'm never going back to music. This is okay. where I'm meant to be. This is, these are my people. Okay. This is my place. But do you still play an instrument? Oh, I, I mean, I mess around. I'm not, you know, I wouldn't play in public. I wouldn't subject anyone okay. else to it. Yeah. But why do I play the guitar? I, I used to, I played, I played the flute growing up. That was always my instrument that, you know, as I was in orchestras and stuff. But I don't, don't do that anymore, which is a shame. But I'm sure, I always say, whenever I retire, yeah, 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 you'll well, come back I, I love to learn the cello. I always wanted to learn the cello. So I think I will go back to playing more music. Yeah, yeah. I picked it up again when my kids started playing. So, mm. you know, and it, it's amazing how when you see your kids changing chords on a guitar that you're like, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, so yeah. it's pretty awesome. But it, it seems like a real snowball that was building here. And then what was the impetus to return back to Dublin? I, I often say it wasn't necessarily that there was a draw back to Dublin. I think I was just done with London. I was mm. there 12 years. It's such an amazing city. I was there last week. I love it to bits. And maybe it wasn't even London. I just wanted a change. I wanted yeah. to go somewhere different. And I had a network in Ireland. So it seemed like the obvious place. Yep. And that that next first stop was was Bizimply in, yes. in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, where I met my co-founder Emily. And Bizimply was a great experience. I was at some drinks. The very kind people at NDRC, back when NDRC was down at the Digital Hub, they gave me a, a desk to work from. And I used to go to all the networking events that they had. And I was at drinks and I met Jer Jared Ford, who's the founder of Bizimply, who is a brilliant person, absolute genius, product genius. Met him and the whole team were there at some drinks. And I, you know, I spoke to Jared and I, I'd say within five minutes, I was like, I want to work for this company. Yeah. Straight away. You meet so, you know, you go to so many, I'm sure you're like me, you're at so many startup events, you meet so many people. And I'll, I mean, this is harsh, but I'll be frank. The vast majority of people, when they describe what their startup is, you go, <laughs> you haven't yep. left your a bit, a bit real that, job yeah. for that. I know. <laughs> well, that's why 95% of startups fail, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but Jared described what they were doing and Bizimply is a workforce management software tool. It's used by the hospitality sector. Again, they were super early. They were running trials, but they'd never, they were pre-revenue. I, I always say that was the easy, I, it, it feels a little bit disingenuous saying they're pre-revenue because I joined and I just, I, I said, you have sent out invoices. It's just none of these people have paid you. And they were like, yeah, well, you know, we don't. They, they, they kind of felt like they didn't want to ask for money because they felt like the product wasn't good enough. But it was. These people were using the product all the time. So my first week, I just made a few phone calls and, and then brought revenue in. So it was the easiest. You know, I, I can claim I joined pre-revenue, but all I had to do was to make a few phone calls and, and the reven revenue started coming in. But yeah, the, it, it was, it's a great business. It, it's a great product. It's used by a lot of Costa Coffees now in the UK. Pretty much every. I, I was... With some friends last night, we walked by a bar and I pointed in the window and I said, that's simply, you know, you see yep. behind the counter, you see the, the clock in, clock out on an iPad. So, yeah, it, it was it was a good one to join. But I could tell when I talked to Jared about it, I was like, this is you're solving a real problem. 
and you know what you're talking about. He was from the restaurant trade. He'd he'd owned restaurants himself. Okay, got it. And then then it looks like after Bizimply that you were doing some consulting and that you went into Axonista probably mm-hmm. on an advisory consulting gig and then they asked you to stick around for a while. Exactly. I, yeah. I actually met Claire McHugh and Dara Ward back in 2015, 2016 when I was, I was looking at a startup project and I went to go meet them. It was somewhere off of, somewhere above, what was it? At Nassau Street. Yes. Um, and yeah, where the office was talk to them the about community. the talk to them about the project they showed me what they had built all this interactive video for qvc the the shopping. tv shopping network in the mm-hmm. u.s and i'm like whoa this was mind-blowing and it was probably a hundred times too expensive for the startup that i wanted to build back then yeah um, but it, it was amazing and it's so cool that you were involved with that yeah so that that's real enterprise sales you know they have big customers high value contracts so yeah, it was good to get that mix and interactive video. I really liked because again, it was it was media. It was a little bit closer to that the creative industries where I'd been with music and and the super team. A lot of people with very specialist skills, video engineers and data scientists, really smart people. Oh yeah, definitely. I was I was floored by by what they showed me. It was amazing. And then what was the trigger point to launch Boundless? A, you know, a little oh. while later. I mean, I probably, I should have started a startup years earlier. And people used to always say to me, when are you going to start your own? Or, or, or more often than not, people used to say, I assume you're going to start your own thing very soon. But I, I wasn't brave enough. You know, I was, I, I really, I had a lot of friends that were startup founders. I had seen startups destroy people's mental health. I had seen far more companies fail than have success. I, I was definitely very scared of it. But I reached a point where I needed, I was overdue. I was a CEO for 10 years. I probably overstayed in that role. And I wanted a big leap, a big jump. I wanted something that was a huge challenge. And the CEO role was the obvious place to go. But I sure as hell didn't want to be a CEO of someone else's baby. Yep. Because that sounds like all kinds of complicated yeah. Uh, so I, I knew the next, I think joining Axonista, I knew the next thing I would do would be my own thing, but I didn't know what. And then at this problem I had experienced when I was at Axonista, and it it seemed like too big a problem to solve. It seemed far too complex. There was a lot of legal risk involved. You, you, you needed funding to establish all of these entities internationally. I, I wasn't convinced that it was possible to deliver a cohesive quality customer experience. There were lots of service providers operating the model that we now operate. But the, ex, the customer experience was rubbish. They were awful. The support was terrible. It's, you know, a lot of them still, it, it's that kind of experience. And I didn't know if it could be done well. So I kept, it was a problem that gnawed away at me. And, you know, I always had like a notebook, right, of different ideas. And it was always there glaring at me. But it took me time to say, yeah, I'll give it a go. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating. And it again, it just seems like this snowball gathering momentum and that the network you built, the experiences that you had, the confidence that that gave you, the 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 leadership the the thinking the planning the execution the strategy all that stuff combined into one do you think that if you hadn't gone through that and you had started it 10 years before 
that you would have been able to get the attention of all-star investors like Chuck Warner from Out of Ventures and Julie Maples from Firefly Ventures, who were the key investors in your seed round? It's really hard to say because there are lots of first-time founders who maybe don't have a whole lot of work experience behind them who do amazing things and raise huge sums of money, right? Yep. There are people Absolutely. like that. You could have been that one. So I, I don't know if I would have been that one. I think so much of it's about psychology, right? Mm. I'm I'm not into sports, but being a startup founder, I do see the parallels. You know, I know a lot of people would read sports biographies and stuff to learn about the mindset of, of athletes or coaches. And it is similar. You have to believe that you can win. And I didn't believe that before. It took me time to build that belief. And for me, and people are different, right? What will give you that belief is different for different people. For me... What gave me that belief was de-risking and saying, well, I know, you know, I know how to hire and build a team. I, I know how to run a finance function. I have really good background in the legal stuff. Um, I, you know, I know how to raise investment. I get the startup thing. I have a network. So for me, all of those things were de-risking. Yep. By the time I can, and it's still, it's so bloody hard. It is still so bloody hard <laughs> when you have that background and experience and you have all of those things. So I'm constantly in awe of people who are new to tech or very young founders. I, I'm just like, I have no idea how you do it. But for me, building, having that arsenal of tools, de-risking was the thing that allowed me to go, yeah, I could, I I can do this. But I was still terrified that it was going oh, to be. Yeah. My fear was like, I, I just did this fear that, it, you know, we'd never get any customers or we'd get like seven customers and then we wouldn't yep. be able to get any more. And it would just be this damp squib and it would be <laughs> that I'd end up going, oh, how, you know, how did I think I could start a company? Why did I think I could do this? And that it would be really embarrassing. I'm really happy to say we're beyond that point. You know, we have, we have enough revenue and enough customers that it's, it's not... It's not mortally embarrassing. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. no, you guys, you're doing really well. And, so, and it, but it's like, it's the repetitions because I feel that myself. You know, in the last year now, I've been through a thousand deals, looking at a thousand deals for Techstars, okay? And that that just, that is mental muscle, that muscle memory. And it gives you a great deal of speed, efficiency, confidence, execution, ability, and just improves your leadership abilities as well. Because you start, it's it's what people describe as gut feeling, right? But gut feeling, of course, is based on all of your prior experience. I used to work with this man and my, my old colleague I, I met last week that I hadn't seen for years. We were talking about him and I was telling her how he used to amaze me. He was such a character, real you know, East End London geezer had probably left school very young. Like I'd say he left school at 14 or 15. No formal education. But you, I would come in to propose something to him. It would be a brand licensing deal or something. And I, I would come in and i go, oh, I've got this amazing opportunity. I found this partner. And i just quickly spew out a couple of de details. And he'd go, no, won't work. And I'd be like, totally bursting my bubble here. Yeah. I was saying yeah. it won't work. And he'd go, no. And he would... Rhyme on a list of numbers, he would be able to, like, immediately without taking out a calculator or a pen and paper, he'd go, you know, that, that kind of partnership, that kind of deal, it's going to look like this. You'll sell this many units in this territory, that many units in that territory. The costs are going wow. to be this. 
you know, your profit rate's going to be, your margin's going to be, whatever. It's, it, it's, it's not going to work. Can't make that work. And I used to be like, I'd walk out of the room with my mouth open going, how does he know all this stuff? But he, he'd been doing this for years. And he, yep. because he spent so much time looking at sets of numbers, he just knew the numbers. And That's amazing. My CFO, well, we always joke about it because she's the same. You know, she obviously has a good gut for numbers. And so do I. I've produced so many financial projections and financial models for so many different companies at this stage and so many different types of businesses. We'll look at something and I'll go, you know, I, I reckon that's going to be, it's going to be about 210,000 euro. And she'll go, okay. And she'll, you know, whatever it is, it will involve her having to go and do all this research, do all these calculations. You have to do the calculations. She'll come back. She'll be like, I've spent two days at this. It's 212,000 euro. Okay. You know, you'll always be you were a little, you were a little bit in off her the... around. Um, and you do, you just like numbers is where it's very noticeable. I think when you were talking about deals, probably the same thing. You just get this mm. goal. You're like, mm, probably going to need about a million for that. Or, but of course you can't, you know, you can't just rely on gut instinct and say, I reckon this is where we're at in terms of ARR. Mm. But yeah, you do Absolutely. get deals for it. You do. But it, and, and, and it probably comes back then to you know that piece you were saying about the kind of fear of being a first-time founder and being ready what's interesting in terms of what you're doing obviously with boundless is that it it seems like something that you know should have been solved or someone should have been solving it already but actually really it takes someone who knows all of the nuance to it because i'm sure people have looked at it from the outside and think oh well you should be able to do this and you know maybe someone f not from the background would say oh yeah i could build a platform but they won't think through all of the 10 different knock-on effects of that they need to look at in this particular thing. And like that, you know, your experience of all of it has gotten you to the point that you know the ins and outs of, you know, problems down the line in particular areas. So whilst you were coming at it from a, you know, first-time founder piece, you were coming at it with a deep kind of knowledge of the challenges of what you're trying to solve. Well, what you've described is exactly what's happened, Owen. Our, our space got extremely busy once COVID hit and once, particularly when there was that explosion in remote working and funding going into the remote work space, there were a huge number of people who opportunistically decided to build a startup in this space. They just saw an opportunity. I'm the only founder in the space from an ops background. So what most companies in this space did was they just looked at it and said, oh, I can just piggyback these existing service providers. I can piggyback on their infrastructure, build a tech front end that the customer uses, but I'll outsource the actual employment and the payroll and so on to third parties. But I've been a customer of these third parties. They sucked so bad. I decided to devote my life to building an alternative. But I knew that because I'd been a customer. But I think there was an attitude in the space that you can solve all problems with tech. You just automate, you, you build tech. In my mind, the tech and a good tech user interface and great product experience, that's table stakes. You have to provide that. But you cannot eliminate what's behind that. You're dealing, you're dealing with HR problems. You're dealing with people's benefits. There's a big human element to what we do. So you need all of that at the back end and it needs to be high quality. So yeah, it, the fact that people have taken that approach of just being very opportunistic and not actually understanding the problems, not understanding the customer, it's given us a really big opportunity to differentiate and be the, the ops people that really understand the problems and can, can 
see it from the customer's perspective and build the product that they really need and provide the level of support that they need. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. How are you thinking about your next round, given that your seed round was roughly 18 months ago? How's that going to shape up? So really, really interestingly, if you talked to me four or five months ago, the answer to this question would have been very different. Obviously, the world, you know, the world is changing all the time. And we've seen it. We saw a lot of change last year when it come, came to fundraising markets and, and the realities of being out there in fundraising. We have just closed a couple of very large customers. And we're, we've started to realize that actually we are in a position now to do enterprise sales. So we are in a very nice position of having enough funding through through sales, customers, large customers paying annually up front to support us in the growth that we want to deliver this year. Wow. So right now we're not actively fundraising. Okay. Now that's a good position to be in. It's a great position to be in. And I keep saying, I'm not, you know, I'm not closing the door to ever raising venture money again, but I want to work with VCs that are coming to me that have conviction on what we're doing, that see the opportunity and really want to, to work in a partnership rather than being out there chasing the money, which is a great position to be in. But it's made me think so differently myself and Emily, my co-founder, keep saying our perspective on things is just totally different now. And now we're going after much larger customers. How we do sales, how we do marketing is all going to look very different this year. And I'm yeah. very excited about that. It feels like a kind of like a fresh start it's quite it is exciting it's nice and i gotta imagine that someone like chuck warner like i mentioned she's not going to be the type of vc with her long-term view that will try to get you to do another round so they get a valuation bump for their fund no i, I had breakfast with her last friday in london she's super excited super excited about the enterprise sales opportunity extremely supportive so yeah with the we have we have not we're not overfunded you know, a lot of companies in our space raised hundreds of millions they're now trying to figure out how to make their margins work. We've had those fundamentals working all along. So the, the world is our oyster. There are many paths we can go down now, which is great. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah. we'll move to the point of this discussion, D, where Owen asks his last final famous question that we ask everybody on this podcast. Owen, over to you, buddy. Yes. And, and thanks again, D. You've shared those with us. Just is there anything people wouldn't expect to know about you? Um, I should have prepared an answer for this, but I didn't. Anything people wouldn't expect to know about me. I am, I'm a big yogi. I'm very into yoga mm. and meditation. And I have, when I go on vacations, I will often do yoga holidays. I do like when I travel for work as well, I'll always find a yoga studio near my hotel and it makes you feel like a real local, mm. you know, and go for a yoga class locally before work. It's something I love to do. Don't know if that's don't know that, if that's no, the kind of thing you're hoping for. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I was just thinking this morning. I I do meditate myself as well, but I meditate standing up while I'm walking. There Ooh. is a way to do this. This guy Shirzad Shamin, and I, I went through a class thanks to Paul Smith, who's 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 a good friend last year, and it works. And I do it for five minutes every morning, and it totally clears my head. Kind of like a horse yeah. sleeping standing up, you know. Going to have to research that and hope I don't bump yeah. into anyone. On the street. Exactly. No, I'll share it. I'll share it with you, Dee. But listen, <laughs> thank you so much for joining the show. This has been fascinating to figure out more about yep. you and to hear really the story from you firsthand. And it all it all blends together so well. And I can see why you guys are totally just killing it with with boundless. So keep going. This is in, such an awesome story. Thank you. 
Thanks so much, both of you. I really enjoyed it. Take care and have a good day. Thanks. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Dee Coakley for opening up her mind to help us figure out why she does what she does. You can learn more about Dee Coakley and Boundless in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. Thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, and I run the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch with us, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See you.